Hello, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the February 15th, 2021 edition of Digging Out. This program offers a means for getting us past November 3rd, December 3rd, and January 6th, 2021, and beyond as we collectively clear the debris from the last four days, four weeks, four years, last 400 years, or even so many millennia. And now today's guest is Dr. Manuel Pastor, Distinguished Professor of Sociology and American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. He currently directs the Program for Environmental and Regional Equity and USC's Equity Research Institute and is a member of Governor Newsom's COVID Recovery Task Force. He's been making the case for a new economic agenda rooted in social solidarity to bridge gaps of inequality, accelerate COVID recovery, and consider all Californians' future. The expansive realm will try to tackle here on Digging Out. Atop a prodigious list of publications are his most recent books, his latest, State of Resistance, what California's dizzying descent and remarkable resurgence means for America's future, along with his previous recent books, Equity, Growth, and Community, What the Nation Can Learn from America's Metro Areas, and Unsettled Americans, Metropolitan Context and Civic Leadership for Migrant Integration. Dr. Pastor was the founding director of the Center for Justice, Tolerance, and Community at UC Santa Cruz. He's received fellowships from the Danforth Guggenheim Kellogg Foundations and grants from Irvine Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the National Science Foundation, the Hewlett Foundation, MacArthur Foundation, Environmental Protection Agency, the W.T. Grant Foundation, the California Endowment, California Resources Board, and many others. People who build social things tap him for his expertise. Dr. Pastor joins me from Pasadena. Welcome to Digging Out, Dr. Manuel Pastor. Glad to be with you. Glad to be digging out with you today. Okay, thank you. I want first to post listeners that we are recording this on February 12th. The debris is everywhere with persons of color being overrepresented in COVID deaths and long haulers, emerging long-term unemployment, especially women in this case, education disintegration, deferred immigration reform, and delayed and imperfect census collection. All the general themes about inequalities are very clear. I'm really interested in, as you map this out, when you can be very, very specific, because I think my listeners and, and generally the public understands the overrepresentation. So at the construct I see in what I've looked into your work, that there's both top down and bottom up roles at, that you call on grassroots movements and look in the national scheme of things. So I think a good place to start is you always open your public appearances with defining. So everybody's on board with the meaning of equity. Yeah. So let me, thank you for having me. And let me say a couple of words. I mean, you started that question by talking about COVID. And what I've been saying is that COVID is the disease 
that reveals our illness of employment precarity, people barely hanging on to a job, the racial wealth gap, which meant that a lot of Black and Latino workers felt like they had no cushion and had to go to work in risky settings, the inadequate access to health care that certainly marked the early days in the current period of what's going on with COVID, the lack of legal status so that we saw relief programs roll out from the federal government that deliberately excluded mixed status families, that is families where one person might lack legal status and the rest of the family had that legal status. And so in some sense, the underlying pre-existing conditions of social inequality and economic desperation were lit up by the COVID crisis. And I think that that's opened up both a sort of sense of the scarring reality and perhaps a sense of the promise. And by that, I mean that we've also recognized that in this current crisis, that mutuality matters, that it is absolutely essential to make sure that everyone gets protection, that everyone gets the vaccine, which is now becoming more available, and that when we protect those who have the least, we're actually protecting all of us because the only way we get rid of this big disease is by making sure that those communities which have been the most vulnerable because of where they work, because of overcrowded housing conditions, because their lack of access to adequate care, that when those communities are protected, all of us are protected. As for the top-down dimensions of this, I think we're seeing this right now in the rollout of the COVID vaccine. There was a top-down strategy, produce a lot of vaccine, get it out through the state, handed out in big mega centers. And what that didn't pay any attention to is what happens in low-income communities of color where people don't have cars and can't drive to the mega centers. What happens when someone who's desperately on the edge of poverty can't take four or five hours off from work to wait in line for this life-saving medicine? What happens when there's been a history of medical abuse of communities of color, particularly black communities. And so there's a high level of distrust about whether or not you should be one of the first people to get the vaccine. So as much as the top-down strategy of doing the science, producing the vaccine, getting it down through traditional channels is important, it's never really gonna cover those who need it unless you also have a bottom-up strategy that relies on trusted messengers in the community that relies on community organizers to move people to vaccine centers. And that begins to realize that the same grassroots forces that were able to activate unexpected voters, young voters, voters of color, et cetera, in Georgia, and turn that state over to an election of two of the most progressive senators we're seeing in the Senate right now. It's that same grassroots organizing that is the final mile or really the final step to making sure that the production of vaccine actually gets to the community. So COVID, it's revealed to us our inequalities. COVID compelled us to think about our mutuality and COVID, it 
is also instructing us as to how we need to marry top-down strategies with bottom-up strategies to actually solve the problems we face. And in Orange County was a classic case study, case in point, Dr. America Bracco, who has been the CEO of Latino Health Access, who and I, my listeners have heard me say this many times now, and it bears though repeating is that she was invited by the Orange County Board of Supervisors late, late in the game. It was, I think, in the summertime, many, many months later, where she appeared to talk about there's, there's language access, which is another element that too, I, I want to include what you're talking about too, in terms of distributing vaccines, that there, there's an inaccessibility about the languages in which all of this is sent out, then there's an, an internet kind of savvy that's required. But Dr. Bracco performed a master class in front of the nose of the Board of Supervisor members about this is what leadership, this is messaging. And her brand is this terrific peer-to-peer kind of intervention where the intervention is very effective and, and very highly competent because the peers know what their peers are about, where they're intervening. I'm not sure if Latino health access is something you're familiar with. There are no doubt comparable kinds of programs in Los Angeles County. Yeah, and what we're finding out is it's those community-based organizations and community clinics that have already built up the trust. It could be the most effective vehicles for delivering information about how to protect yourself with social distancing, masks, and avoiding large gatherings. And then also bringing the level of trust that needs to be there about getting the vaccine. And you're right to highlight these two other really key issues, which is about the language that information is available in and the digital divide. You know, we did a study that came out in September of last year. And originally it was a study that was commissioned to think about the road to recovery for Los Angeles in a post-COVID era. We convened a bunch of community, civic, and indeed even business and political leaders as an advisory group to this. And we went through an educational process. And what we realized was when we were doing this report that we really should stop using the word recovery because who would wanna go back to a normal that left us so vulnerable to this crisis? Who would want to go back to a vulnerable with stark racial divides? Who would want to go back to a normal with unequal access to healthcare? Who would want to go back to a normal in which so many of our undocumented brothers and sisters are left out of the systems of care? And so we actually titled this report, No Going Back. And it's not so much about recovery as it is about reimagining and restructuring. But in the process of doing that, we took a look at the digital divide questions. And we asked the question when the COVID pandemic first broke and schools were being shut down for kids who were in K through 12, when they went home, were they on the wrong side of the digital divide? Meaning that in their household, they lacked high-speed internet and a laptop or a desktop computer. About 13% of white kids were on the wrong side of the digital divide but about 35% of black kids and about 40% of Latino kids were on the wrong side of the digital divide. That's painful. That's so monumentally different. That is so many educated kids. 
Well, so think about no matter- 45%, ah. No matter how many of those kids got equipped subsequently with a Chromebook or a hotspot, those are not the same thing no. as having Comcast come into your house and a desktop computer that you can use or parents that can actually help you because they know what the internet is and how to use it. And that gets to that older generation, particularly of seniors and seniors of color, immigrant seniors are so likely to be disconnected from the tools they need to be able to use these signup sites to be able to get the vaccine. So in that sense, if we do not want to replicate the inequalities that existed before, if we do not want to reproduce the inequalities that became even sharper as a result of the COVID crisis, we need to pay special attention. And that gets back to the question that you originally started this with, what is equity? Equity is not about equal access. It's about understanding what it takes to make sure that people are actually included. And that may mean special efforts to address the current inequalities that exist so that you can ensure that we get closer to what equal opportunity truly means and what equal outcomes should truly look like. And I'm also thinking when you're talking about going back, that there's no equity, but we're talking about that in the rescue packages, undocumented households are not receiving those funds to cover all life expenses. But even before that rescue package, there was the public charge rule that the previous administration had created so many complications in an undocumented household, the households that are doing, then this mutuality you're talking about, that are serving so many needs in the community, the public charge rule that was discouraging that healthcare be sought out. So going back to that is, is not, it's no damn good, Dr. Pastor. Well, that's very true. And for your listeners, you may not be quite up to speed. The public charge rule is a rule put out by the uh, Trump administration that said any kind of access of social services would be used against you if you were to ever uh, legalize your status and that you wouldn't be able to or that you would be booted out of the country. And the problem with that, which is that it led to a chilling effect, not simply for people themselves who might be undocumented, but for so many people who might be living in a household in which one of the household members is undocumented. So for example, as part of this report, no going back, we calculated the share of people in LA County who are either themselves undocumented or living with a family member who's undocumented. And that's 18% of all residents wow. in LA County, nearly a fifth. You know, when people think about undocumented folks, they tend to think about people who might be recently arrived you know, they think they're hanging out in front of Home Depot. They just got here a couple of weeks ago, et cetera. But in fact, in LA County, 70% of our undocumented population has been in the country for longer than a decade. Statewide, it's about two thirds. They're not undocumented immigrants. They're undocumented Californians, deeply enmeshed in our communities, usually forming families, very much entrenched in businesses, as employees. And part of that is because the flow of undocumented folks from Mexico has actually declined rapidly. And in fact, the undocumented population in the United States has been on the decline since the year 2007, mostly as a result of improved economic conditions in Mexico and 
lower fertility rates there. The initial CARES package that was passed in, I guess, March, uh, maybe April of last year, obviously excluded undocumented folks who had been contributing, but even worse, it excluded households where there were two people reporting income, married couple, where one person had legal status and was reporting with a social security number. They might've been a US citizen or a green card holder. And the other person filing jointly with them was filing under what's called an I-10, an individual taxpayer identification number, which is the way that undocumented people pay taxes for the most part, because they want to make sure that they're contributing, but also they want to make sure if legalization ever comes that they can show that they were reporting their income. But those households with a mixed status also got deliberately excluded from the CARES Act. The most recent passage, uh, most recent act of about $900 billion has tried to correct that and provide some action. And I hope that the future packages that are being put forward by the Biden administration also become more inclusive and recognize the reality of what contributors the undocumented Californians are to our state and our communities. And I'll head over to the administration in just a bit. I want to let folks who just joined us know that my guest on Digging Out is Dr. Manuel Pastor, Distinguished Professor of Sociology and American Studies and Ethnicity at USC, as well as Director of USC's Program for Environmental and Regional Equity and their Center for the Study of Immigrant Integration. He's serving on Governor Newsom's Task Force for COVID-19 recovery. And we're talking today about the racialized implication of, of economic recovery and impact every day amidst the pandemic, amidst all of us. So before I go into the Biden administration, I'd like to raise two kinds of areas that are falling off in our region concerning COVID is one is what Agen Poo, the domestic workers organizer, she mentions in a, a Forbes interview, she talks about care deserts. That is something that is blowing up with the pandemic. And then I also want to talk about how this mutuality is confounded by the media deserts. And I thank you for coming to this community radio platform. But those, those kind of deserts can really undermine the kind of progress that the mutuality kind of mindset is trying to present and promote. Well, Ajin Pu and the work she does with the National Domestic Workers Alliance is exactly an example of the power of mutuality. In her book, The Age of Dignity, and in her organization, Caring Across Generations, she points out the fact that the fate of what's an older, wider population in the United States is actually deeply connected to the fate of younger immigrant women and Black women, who are also generally the folks who are providing the sort of day-to-day care of that elder population, and that there is therefore a mutual set of obligations, responsibilities, and connections. We know that we are aging as a society, and so the caring economy that is the part of our economy that will care for elders and children is actually slated to grow. But we also need to make sure that we're expanding the caring economy by taking care of the caretakers. And remunerating them appropriately. Raising raising their wages, providing the training, providing the health insurance, et cetera. And that therein lies 
a mutual gain, a win-win that actually could also create a deeper sense of bonding and mutuality that could go in the direction of a lots of other spaces as well. Mm-hmm. So for example, you know what people seem to forget is that behind every software engineer is an army of nannies and food service workers and gardeners providing the care that's around them. And they think that we can promote high tech without also raising the minimum wage and promoting unionization. We need to see those things as mutually linked as part of our economic development strategy. And that's what we're trying to get out in a new book coming out, I think at the end of this year, called Solidarity Economics, Why Mutuality and Movements Matter, Why We Need to Recognize Our Solidarity with One Another, Why We Need to Recognize the Power of Mutuality in Our Economy, and Why We Need to Understand that We Need in order to obtain the political solidarity to change the current system. We need vibrant social movements that can actually make that change. It's harder for them to do that when there are media deserts, when what the media focuses in on is the you know last crazy tweet from the former ex-president instead of looking at, I'll just give you an example. The way the media was surprised by Georgia speaks not so much although it is a testimony to the great work going on in Georgia, but it speaks to the fact that they weren't paying any attention to the grassroots in Georgia. Because if you'd been listening with an ear to the ground of the movement organizing of the new Georgia project and so many other organizers in Georgia, you would have thought this is possible. You would have realized that the significant political victory in Arizona was possible. When the media is not paying attention The great work of movement organizations doesn't get lifted up. Now I'm moving back to a general point that you're compelling me to include here is I want to know how in your approach to this mutuality, it's probably the most potent way we can push back and end the grip, Dr. Pastor, that zero-sum thinking has on our body politic. Is that something you're consciously framing and taking apart when you talk about mutuality? Well, you know, very much. I'll just give you an example. Yes. A lot of you may love your iPhone. And when you look at it, the thing you think about is the genius of Steve Jobs and the design characteristics of the Apple Corporation. And you forget that half of the patents that are here were supported by federal research. You forget that it relies on an internet that was funded by the federal government. You forget that it collects information on your buying and other kinds of habits and feeds those into a data commons that allows companies to privately appropriate profit from our collective knowledge. So we even look at innovation and invention through a kind of buccaneer, individualistic, market-oriented way, instead of looking at it as the sort of embodiment of our collective knowledge working together. And if we did that, then we would realize that if it's produced collectively, then we deserve some kind of return from it. And that's what we call a technology dividend. If you look at the companies that actually do best in the United States, I'll give you an example Southwest Airlines is the only airline in the United States that hasn't declared bankruptcy multiple times. 
It treats its workers better, treats its customers better. By the way, its workers are unionized. And it understands that building team, something like you talk about with Team Human, is something that actually leads to a business to be more successful. And in one of the books that you mentioned, Equity, Growth, and Community, we looked at the ability of metropolitan areas to sustain job growth over time. And we found that those regions that were more equitable in terms of income distribution, less racially segregated and less politically fragmented were more likely to sustain growth over time. I mean, you know this in your bones. You know that when people are sort of snapping and biting and competitive with one another, it's hard to get anything done. But when people embody the spirit of team and work together, so much can be accomplished. And yet, although we know it, we've been sort of conquered by a neoliberal common sense that says that it's all about individual interests, corporations, and market competition. So we need to combat that mentality. But we also need to realize that some people benefit from that mentality and that we need to amass the power to restrict their ability to affect our politics and amass the community and social movement power to change the political terrain. Well, the team human to which Dr. Pastor referred, we were speaking in advance of the interview. That's the title team human and it's written by Douglas Rushkoff. And it's a title I recommend along with the other titles that Dr. Pastor has authored. And the Solidarity book, I would love to be able to have you back when it's out at the end of the year and talk about that. So I am, yes. I'll tell you, I'll tell you how much solidarity we've got in that book. It'll be available as a free PDF that you can download. Oh, there you go. So I don't think we have time to talk about what the inequities are in the state's response to Prop 22, designating gig workers, a certain group of them, the rideshare, the delivery workers, designating them as subcontractors. I guess this is this would be like an, an extension of the interview, but I think we've seen this proposition that may very well be an export to other states, which will make some more inequalities here in California and beyond. I'm sure it concerned you. And the franchise of JanPro, I heard on a marketplace program this week, where JanPro is drawing down resources for giving minorities that are involved in doing maintenance jobs, owning their business, that JanPro is leveraging resources that are not yielding kinds of dividends for the franchisees. So that all of these sort of subcontractors, not actual employees are really losing out in the resources that they're entitled in a proper payment. I'll tell you what really bothers me. I think there could have been a productive conversation about the kind of work involved in being an Uber driver or a DoorDash deliverer. That is that some people really do want the flexibility and less hours and all of the stuff that's associated with that job. And I think you could have had to say, well, how do we do this and provide portable benefits? How do we do this? And for people who are full-time, make sure that they're actually employees, et cetera. You could have had a conversation. And instead, Uber and Lyft spent $200 million and bought an election. That was, I mean, uh, you know, I could have forget what was in the title or forget what was in the 
uh, they could have described something I really like, and I would have voted against it because there's no way that two corporations should be able to push public policy with $200 million of media and misleading stories. Plus what was embedded in the actual kind of contract when consumers were using a service that was an additional layer of funds to drive the point to support Proposition 22. So it was always going to be $200 million plus, plus. Yeah, we paid for that campaign. Yeah, exactly. Well, I have so many more questions to ask. I I would love to have been able to get to how the people's budget is dealing with mutuality issues, but I'm going to have to save that for another time. Well, Dr. Manuel Pastor, thank you so much for your time today on Digging Out. Let's dig out together and dig forward. Okay, thank you. My guest was Dr. Manuel Pastor, Distinguished Professor of Sociology and American Studies and Ethnicity at USC, Director of USC's Program for Environmental and Regional Equity and their Center for Study of Immigrant Integration. And he serves on Governor Newsom's Task Force for COVID-19 Recovery. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone.